today on Ag News Daily. Seems like you're getting hit on, on two different fronts, if not more, and uh, that just makes things very difficult and already already low commodity prices. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday, indeed. I am Mike Pearson, joined by Hannah Pagel. Hannah, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. And yourself? I am sweating like a stuck pig. I think we'll go with that <laughs> metaphor since this is a family podcast. And, of course, we've got Delaney Howell on the line. Delaney, how are you? Yeah, I'm a little scarred by your metaphor now. Stuck pig? Yeah, because I'm just getting an image of you, like, sitting in, like, a wife beater in your boxers, sweating, probably have a well, gold chain around your neck. You put me in a wife beater. You overestimate my uh, stick to on a hot day. Um, do you get what I'm saying there? No. Oh, neither. I'm not in a wife beater. No. Oh. <laughs> Nothing. Nope, I'm out. Uh, happy Friday, everybody. Now you'll all have nightmares with that image in your head. <laughs> For oh, sure. Boy, speaking of nightmares, we had a lot of folks in the world of agriculture, particularly the agricultural trade, concerned that we might see a nightmare on today's quarterly grain stocks and USDA's acreage estimates. But Delaney, that didn't come to pass, did it? No, it was a pretty boring report. And we had the chance to talk to Ted Seifert a little bit ago about just what this report means. So let's kick it over to Ted. Well, of course, we had big reports dropped today. We have the grain stocks, quarterly grain stocks report, and also the acreage report. And to help us break down those reports, we've got one of our regular market analysts, Ted Seifert from the Zaner Group. Ted, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. Hey, Delaney. Hey, Mike. It's an absolute pleasure of mine, as always. Ted, let's break it down here. The reports both seem to be pretty boring today. Were there anything, anything big that's jumping out at you that we need to make sure producers know about? Yeah, so it's pretty impressive how good the trade guesses were this time of year. And I, we've been talking about it before the report came out, saying, wow, we are all really lined up on top of each other as far as our trade guesses. There is not a lot of, of diversity here, uh, very tight ranges on the, on the trade guesses, and a lot of groupthink. Well, the USDA agreed. I mean, it came out very much on top of expectations. Uh, the soybean quarterly grain stocks number was only 3 million bushel off the average trade guess. It doesn't much get much closer than that. For wheat, it was only 9 million bushels. And for corn, which was the biggest miss, uh, we're talking 38 million bushels, which is still really very small, relatively speaking. Uh, even acreage came in pretty close to expectations. The biggest miss there was corn coming in at 89.1 million acres. The trade was expecting 88.5. Uh, there was some disappointment with that. There had been some people thinking that with as far behind as we were in planting, that that corn acreage number was going to be below an 88, uh, but that is not the case. That's not what we saw here today. Uh, soybean acres came in at 89.6. The trade was expecting 89.7. doesn't get much closer than that. Uh, in wheat, we were at 47.8. The trade was expecting 47.1. That was slightly bearish. Most of that coming in the spring wheat, however, and that's what had been taking. That's been under the most pressure here here today. Uh, I guess the biggest surprise is that the principal acres went up 2.9 million acres, and compare that to with planting intentions, which had us going down 1.2 million. That means that we were 4.1 million acres over intentions. Uh, we found quite a bit more acres, and think about the prices of where we were at when we were making these decisions. Uh, you know, we were talking 410 corn at the time. We were 10 and a quarter soybeans. 
so I guess in a way that's not terribly surprising. But uh, but that is a big jump historically to see that much acreage come in over intention. Uh, I guess. Go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say, Ted, because we did get that big jump there. We found 600,000 acres in corn. When you look mm-hmm. ahead to this year's harvest, what does that give you for the balance sheet? How are you viewing the rest of the 1819 marketing season? Okay, that's a fantastic question, Mike. So for corn, uh, we have a new harvested acreage number of 81.7. If I use the USDA's trend line yield, which a lot of people would argue with at the moment, but if I use that number, uh, I get production of 14.215. Leaving all the demand side unchanged, that would give me a 1.752 carryover compared to the 1.572 uh, that they're using right now. So um, it's a little bit of a, an increase in carryover if we leave everything unchanged. Now, the question is yield. If we bump that yield up, which a lot of people at this point, with the conditions being as good as they are, would suggest we should, uh, if I go to a 178 national average yield, our carryover would, would, would grow to a 2.079 billion bushel carryover, and that starts to get kind of similar to what we've seen in the last couple of years. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why we've come so far off of our highs in corn. However, I want to say this. I, my balance sheet looks a little bit different than the USDA's right now because I am adding more exports to the equation. The reason why the USDA has our exports for next year dropping 200 million bushels year over year is because of a better Ukrainian crop. However, Ukraine had a problem getting acres planted, so I don't think they got nearly as many as what the USDA was expecting, and they've been having issues with hot and dry conditions. So that Ukrainian crop, rather than the 30 million metric tons that the USDA is looking at, I think is a lot closer to 26 and could be dropping from there. So in the current balance sheet with this new acreage number, I'm adding 200 million uh, bushel uh, to uh, to exports. And with that one trend line 174 national average yield, that puts us right back to a 1.552 billion bushel carryover. But even at that 178 national average yield with my increased exports, I'm at a 1.729 billion bushel carryover. So still looking for declining uh, carryover from year to year in both domestic and glo- global. And, uh, you know, once or if we can shrug off the trade fears, I think there's some upside potential yet for corn. When you look at the soybean side of the balance sheet, is it even worth doing a balance sheet right now since there are so many unknowns with, with obviously, trade and China and the EU? <laughs> That's a fantastic question, Delaney. Uh, so I do the same thing with beans, but I've got stuff all over the place. So really what I'm doing, and, and even for yield, I think it's too early to really make much assumptions on yield. Uh, it's still too early for corn, but I think for soybeans it's way too early to make assumptions on yield. So I'm just not changing anything on the soybeans. I'm just plugging in the new harvested acreage number, and when I do that, I'm coming up with a 411 uh, million bushel carryover, which is really, I mean, it, it's not terribly tight, but it's quite a bit less than the 505 we're looking for this year. Um, and I think it's a fairly friendly number still for the soybean market. You know, it's just a question of can we believe the export number that the USDA has for us? And, and with the tariffs and all the, the potential trade issues that we're going to have, I don't know. It's really hard to know that. So I think we just have to kind of go with the flow and see what happens uh, on the, glo- on the geo- uh, geopolitical front. Ted, I've got one more question for you. Before we let you go, we've got these reports out of the way. They're in the rearview mirror. We're heading into July. What's the trade going to be watching for next? What headlines do growers need to be aware of? Yeah, so, of course, we're going to keep watching the trade headlines, but hopefully most of the worst of that news is behind us, and we've got good news coming down the line. We'll see. Who knows if and when that ever comes. But weather is going to be the main focus, again, going forward. The July 4th weekend, or in this case, middle of the week, a lot of the time is the turning point in markets. Uh, and with the hotter, warmer conditions that we have now, 
right, we currently need that to kind of dry down this crop a little bit. But if that persists and if we come in on Monday or after the July 4th holiday, Thursday and Friday, and see something in the forecast where we've got these longer-term views of hotter, drier, that could be very supportive for the market. So uh, I don't know. You know, I, I think a lot of the worst news has been factored in. I think we're, we're at the moment talking about a, a very high yield, probably higher than what, a, what it might end up being. Um, so I'm wondering if we should see a turn in the markets here in the next week or two, and I'm wondering if it should be to the upside. How, by how much so will be determined by weather and trade. All right. Ted Seifert, we really appreciate your time today. Absolutely. My pleasure. You guys take care. Have a great Friday. Well, that was great. It's always good to hear from uh, our good friend, the chief market strategist over there at Zaner, and uh, we'll get to the Zaner market wrap-up here in a bit. But with that out of the way, Hannah, is there any ag news that's jumping out at you? Well, I have a fun one for you, Mike. I thought I'd just start off with this one because you always start or you always complain about your pickup truck. And so I thought I would let you know that Elon Musk has announced that they will be bringing out their new all-electric Tesla pickup truck to the market sometime before the end of the decade. It's a little like uh, they don't really know exactly when they're going to release it, but a new pickup is on the line for you. So, Well, that's going to be way too expensive for Mike to buy. (laughs) Well, now, if he brings it out before the end of the next decade, then before the end of the next century, I'll be able to buy one. Very great. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as it's been beat up and hit a deer and totaled out by some insurance company, that's where I step in. My, I'm always the last stop on the path to the, uh, the junkyard. Yard. Yeah. 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 Anyway, sorry, Hannah. No, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's just going to be a six seater truck. It'll have the ability to go about 400 to 500 miles um, or maybe even higher before it needs a charge. And then this is one that they said that they're kind of highlighting. The truck will be able to have a 240-volt connection for heavy-duty tools and an air compressor to run air tools. So it's Ooh. kind of like a, a... Like a work truck. Yeah. But yeah, I'll be I'll, able to... Uh air up all the tires after they go flat because I'm driving them <laughs> when they're bald. That'll be nice. <laughs> hey, uh, oh, Delaney, what's, what's jumping out at you? Uh, oh, shoot. Oh, we did finally see the Senate pass their version of the farm bill yesterday. It was actually a pretty large vote. I think it was 86 to 1 is what it cleared the Senate. or 86 to 11, excuse me, is what it cleared the Senate at. So now they are heading to recess here shortly, and they reconvene July 11th, I believe. And so then they'll start to work with the House and figure out a a uniform farm bill between the two chambers. And I thought it was interesting. One of the things that got slipped in there with the farm bill is the legalization of hemp as an agricultural product. And, of course, that was led by Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is from Kentucky, and that's a big hemp-producing state. Um, So it will legalize the commodity. And, of course, the House version has to approve that as well, so we'll have to see that be merged into the new bill. But it will regulate the hemp, allow it to be a legalized product, and allow hemp researchers to apply for grants from the USDA. Pretty cool. All the way around, we've got to have more flexibility in farm country, and if hemp's a viable option, why not let farmers grow it? Yeah, exactly. Do either of you know what you can, like, use with hemp besides recreational use? I'm just curious. Well, actually, 
hemp is not used for recreational purposes. It doesn't have, I think, the THC levels that uh, marijuana would have. So you can't really smoke it. It's like a ditch weed. You just get like a headache from it, basically. They use hemp in a lot of oils. Um, I think medicinal purposes. What else, Mike? Fiber. That's a big one. Yeah, hemp ropes fiber. are huge. Mm-hmm. They last forever. They are. Uh, they were used by the Navy uh, for generations up until the mid-30s when everybody got concerned about marijuana, the recreational you know, plant. And because marijuana and hemp look so much alike, they just said, hey, we're not growing any of it. We can't tell which is which. No more hemp. And now that's coming back, I suppose we've got the technology that, you know, if I'm a sheriff, I could go into a hemp field and do a test and say, okay, this is hemp, not, you know, wacky tobacco. Okay. <laughs> wacky tobacco, nice. Yeah, hippie cabbage. Devil's lettuce. Yeah, jazz lettuce, devil's lettuce, you bet. Well, let's see. So that is that is interesting news for folks that have that opportunity. And I've got some trade news because, of course, that is still you know, on the radar. Yeah. There was a report published late on Thursday by the website Axios, and they are kind of an independent uh, research, you know, news web thing. And uh, they reported that President Trump had talked with a lot of folks in his inner circle about pulling the United States out of the World Trade Organization. And that caused the stock market to get a little crazy last night in pre-market trading. It, It would really impact a lot of our trading relationships. So Steve Mnuchin, Secretary of the Treasury, went on Fox Business Network this morning. He said that is not right. It is, quote, fake news. And he said it's an exaggeration. The president is upset with the WTO, and President Trump was actually quoted as saying that um, he believes that the WTO, quote, is designed by the rest of the world to screw the United States, unquote. The Hmm. president's talking there. But uh, it sounds like that's been overblown and we're not pulling out of the WTO. And, of course, while we're talking about trade news, July 6th and July 5th are the two magic dates we're watching to see if tariffs get imposed. Well, we know for sure Mexico is going to impose pork tariffs on U.S. pork starting July 5th. That will raise from a 10% tariff, which is what it is right now, to a 20%. And July 6th is the date we're watching to see if China is uh, going to put their tariffs into effect. And we got another date to keep an eye on with regard to tariffs. Canada came out this morning. They announced $16 billion in retaliatory tariffs, $16.6 billion uh, on American goods, basically to retaliate for the steel and aluminum tariffs that uh, Canada faces now. And those are going to go into effect July 1st. And uh, they said they're not going to go any further than that at this time, but they are going to retaliate to the full amount of the steel and aluminum. They also have put together a basically a $2 billion loan and financing program for steel workers and aluminum workers who have been hurt by the tariffs. So that was the news out of Canada today. Okay. Hannah, what else do you got for news? So another piece that I have is the USDA is taking steps to overhaul the way it's regulating agricultural biotechnology. So it, it is going to scrape the previous plan that was developed by the Obama administration, and the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service announced yesterday that it plans to prepare an environmental impact statement as part of its reworking regulation. So from what I understood of this, it's APHIS said that the revisions under consideration would focus the regulatory process of biotechnology 
um, risk that may be posed by the new biotech traits rather than the methods used to produce them. And they're saying that this will make the regulatory process more transparent by while removing unnecessary regulatory burdens. But I don't know. From my point of view, I think it's kind of a 50-50 split in my book. I, I mean, I'm kind of glad that they're moving away from having the regulatory process be moved away from the methods because I kind of feel like just just with like GMOs and like transgenesis, cisgenesis, like there's just a lot of different ways you can go about biotechnology. Um, so I'm kind of glad that they're moving away from the regulatory process on that. But I think it kind of opens up the door to some hazards when you start saying that they're going to start regulating this biotechnology based on risk. Because if you say that, I don't know, just like this apple may give you cancer because it's biotechnology, I feel like that's going to put more fear into consumers than the way it's going on right now. So I don't know. Thoughts? Well, yes, so I have a thought on that, and actually this thought is backed up by a report by Jason Lusk. Did you see this, Hannah? I know you're pretty tuned in to uh, labeling and consumer preference. Um, so Jason Lusk, who we've had on the podcast, he's there at Purdue University, he did a study looking at what happened in the 27 days that mandatory GMO labeling was required in Vermont from July 1st through July 27th before it was overturned uh, on the federal level. And what he found was that during that time period, as soon as labels went on products saying this has been or this is created with a genetically genetic engineering, consumer opposition to GE foods dropped 19 percent. So this this is kind of good news if we do end up going more towards labeling or, or uh, you know, being more transparent with GE uh, ingredients, perhaps consumers aren't going to overreact, which was the initial fear. Hmm. Interesting. Well, actually, that leaves me as my last piece of news talking about GE and GMOs. China's scientific advisory board met last week for the first time in two years, according to some Chinese sources in Beijing. And it's rumored that they've been meeting to talk about whether or not they would approve allowing GMO crops to be planted in the country because they currently allow us to export genetically modified food crops that they can use in their feedstuffs, but they cannot grow it themselves. And what's the sentiment? Are they going to be allowed to? I don't know. It's, oh, okay. We don't but at know least they're yet. talking about it. Yes, that's the rumor. Gotcha. Well, Hannah, before we jump into the markets, do you have any other news to uh, talk about? I do not have any more news to talk about. Mike, do you have any? I just have one piece as we segue into the market segment. Ethanol production, which we've talked quite a bit about with RFS waivers and everything else, surged this last week to its highest level since late last year. The uh, EIA, the Energy Information Associate Administration, says production was just over a million barrels a day, so we're up 8,000 on the week. And stocks also were up, which means we were not using all of it, but they were only up 27,000 barrels. So all in all, good news for Corn demand. Let's see what that corn demand looks like. Our markets, folks, as you heard, are brought to us by our good friends at the Zaner Group. You can get in touch with Ted Seifert or any of the analysts for more information at 312-277-0050, or you can visit their website at zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. 
Well, after the excitement, let's see where we finished. In the corn market, higher today. The July contract was up five and a quarter to finish at 350 and a quarter. New crop December also up five and a quarter. Closed the day at 371 and a quarter. Soybeans turned around at the close and finished lower. The July contract was down two and three quarter cents at 858 and a half. November down three and a half cents to finish at 880 even. Big rally in Chicago wheat. The July contract was up 18 cents on the day at 497 and a half. September up 17 and three quarter. Quarters close the day at 5:01 and a quarter. Looking at the livestock side, mixed trade in live cattle front month June was down $1.20 at 107 even. The August contract limit up on the day $3 higher at 106.7250. And in feeder cattle front month August limit up closed 450 higher at 151.3250. The September was up 35750 to finish at 150.95. And in lean hogs the July contract was up $1.75 at 82.8750. The August up 72 and a half finished at 76.45. And of course can't forget about dairy. It is still dairy month for another few days. June class three milk was up three cents to fit close at fifteen twenty seven. The July was up twenty eight, finished the day at fourteen sixty two. Next we've got a report from our reporter, Bruce Gorder. Boy, say that three times fast. He's talking to the NCGA's newest VP, Kevin Ross from Iowa. Before we hear that, let's get a word from our friends at Latham High Tech Seeds. Joining us from Latham High Tech Seat this week is Phil Long, the agronomic specialist. And Phil, we've been hearing reports throughout the Corn Belt of ample rainfall events. We're starting to see some ponding. Some of the beans are starting to change colors. What should growers be looking for and what should we be doing? Seems like this spring has been an excellent time to, to spot some of those, those different disorders out there in soybeans and especially uh, iron deficiency chlorosis. Uh, it's one of them that's, that's showing up, uh, but, but remember that's, that's on the top of the plants. That's, you're going to see that yellowing, that intervenal chlorosis yellowing in the top of the plant, uh, not necessarily throughout the plant. Um, that's going to be kind of your key factors in, in, in differentiating between a flooding issue and then whether it's iron deficiency chlorosis. What should I do if I am noticing iron deficiency chlorosis? Sure. So, you know, typically it shows up in, in, in those saturated areas, those areas of, of high pH is really what causes it. Um, but, but a lot of it's also caused by just poor root growth. So that's a combination of factors, obviously. Uh, but it, it's a hard one to, uh, to, get, to get rid of, uh, especially if you have a high pH scenario. So the, the best things are picking uh, genetics uh, that are favorable for that. We have our, our ironclad, ironclad soybeans are, are known for having high IDC tolerance uh, built into the, the genetics. Um, that's the best method around it. Um, other than that, spraying typically doesn't show a yield advantage at the end of the season. It's just too diluted. Um, you may see a response in greenness, but uh, typically your best bet is genetics, maybe an in the furrow if you want to try it with a, with a better defensive genetics is, is typically the best route to go. All right, folks, and if you want to get those genetics to work on your farm next year, call 877-GO-LATHAM or visit their website at LathamSeeds.com. Commodity groups need quality leadership at the local, state, and national levels. The National Corn Growers Association membership have recently made a choice that fits that criteria perfectly. Kevin Ross farms in far western Iowa, and he has held leadership positions at all levels and is now near the top of the NCGA leadership ladder. Kevin explains. Well, I was just recently elected into the uh, vice president role. Um, 
that'll that'll uh, commence there in October one and uh, then beginning of the next fiscal year. And uh, looking forward to the new challenge and um, all the the new responsibilities that come with that. So that puts you in the queue, in the leadership queue, doesn't it, as you uh, move on up the ladder? Yeah, it sure does. Yeah, one one year after that, we'll be uh, assuming the presidential uh, role there at National Corn Growers, and uh, um, you know, same thing. Just looking forward to the opportunity, and certainly, uh, certainly humble to represent uh, farmers across the country. Certainly, a lot of uh, great leaders in uh, National Corn Growers. Not only National Corn Growers, but all the national uh, commodity groups have come out of the Midwest, and uh, hopefully, you'll be in another long line of, of those folks. Uh, as you look forward to this year, Kevin, uh, what are you going to be doing as you prepare to uh, take the next step? You know, uh, in the next year, uh, certainly in the vice presidential role, um, you end up leading a few more of the uh, uh, committees or task forces, and uh, certainly. Uh, certainly taking a lot of uh, responsibility in the in the executive um, uh, committee um, as well. You know, certainly asked to do a number of things outside and in D.C. and uh, representing the association and, and uh, those types of things. Certainly, the time commitment goes up, and um, you know, I guess we're uh, we're ready for those challenges, and uh, uh, certainly look forward to working with all the the folks that uh, we've continued to work with in the past and and continuing to build the relationships and the network that that we already have. Certainly no uh, lack of issues uh, for uh, farmers and ranchers to be looking at now. Uh, Let's look at a couple of those. First of all, the the trade issue, is it's really up in the air right now. Uh, What's your take on what's going on? Well, you know, there's a lot of uh, issues with trade right now, certainly concerning uh, rural America and, and, uh, you know, talking trade deficits and things like that. But whenever we... You know, whenever we mess around with these trade deals, the uh, retaliation at, at some point seems like it's going to get back to the farmer because, uh, you know, we export a lot of ag goods. And, um, you know, and the other thing that's hitting us right now when they when they turn around and slap these steel tariffs on, you know, the, the consumed goods that we need uh, need to do our jobs, that's, um, uh, those costs go up too. So um seems like you're getting hit on, on two different fronts, if not more, and, and – um, that just makes things very difficult and already already low commodity prices. But uh, uh, trade is a complicated issue. There's no question about that, and we you know we, we do our best to understand it and to uh, uh, give input where needed. But um, it's uh, uh, it's another one of those pieces as a farmer that's kind of outside a lot of your control. But as an association, we do our best to influence it, influence it where we can. There was some news on the uh, on the front yesterday. Uh, the uh, Senate has passed their version of the farm bill. The House also has one now, so now it goes to conference committee. Uh, are you optimistic we'll get something done here pretty soon? You know, I I think uh, I think the farm bill has a pretty good shot. Uh, they'll uh, they'll go to conference. There's a few amendments that, uh, uh, that that got through. I think on both sides that uh, they're going to do some negotiating on and. And a few things will hopefully get tossed out, and, and we'll come up with a, a, a decent farm bill again. There's a lot of pieces of that farm bill uh, that that uh, you know that ones that we use every day, and other ones that uh, are kind of outside of what uh, the normal purview is of the of the producer, and and um, you know a lot of important pieces of that for for not just not just ag, but uh, uh, food and ag programs in general. It's hard to come up with a, a total farm bill with uh, agriculture so diverse in this country uh, from north to south, east to west. It's pretty tough to come up with the, with a perfect farm bill, so you really have to come up with a, as good a compromise as you can. Yeah, you know, they say uh, they say 
legislation or a good piece of legislation is like making sausage. You know, you kind of throw it all in there, and, <laughs> and hopefully, what you come out with is a nice, uh, a nice Polish or a, a nice, uh, a nice bratwurst or something like that. But uh, <laughs> um, there's uh, there's a lot of things that go into it, and um, you know, it kind of gets mixed together, and and uh, some things get get uh get thrown in and tossed out there's no piece of perfect legislation but um uh you know we certainly hope that it, it does well for the nation's corn farmers i've never heard it put that way so i kind of kind of like that <laughs> <laughs> let's let's look at another issue that uh corn growers especially have been concerned with for uh for a lot of years a lot of progress has been made in the ethanol side of uh, things uh, now maybe a, a half a step back from epa's announcement this week yeah, um, you know, the EPA is, is certainly, uh, it's been really frustrating when it comes to the RFS here in, uh, in very recent months. Um, you know, just, I'll just be frank, Scott Pruitt has been, uh, uh, doing what feels like, uh, trying to destroy the RFS with, uh, death by a thousand cuts and, and a lot of things on the inside that, uh, uh, you know, appears from the outside that they're, that they're, uh, um, you know, pieces that, that you wouldn't really even notice sometimes. And, you know, if you're really paying attention, there's a lot of things that he's been doing that, uh, uh, that are undermining the, the real, uh, integrity of it and, and the intent of the RFS. And, and, uh, it's hurting our corn farmers, hurting agriculture in general. The president has been solidly behind uh, the renewable fuels standard, uh, since he was campaigning and he, he remains so publicly anyway. So, it's kind of disappointing what uh, what Secretary Pruitt is doing uh, from the EPA standpoint. Yeah, it has been. Um, I think uh, I, I think it's reflecting poorly on on, uh, on the president at this point. You know, as Pruitt's been uh, in my mind just off the rails, and really some of the things he's done in, in granting these waivers and um, just a few of the other items that uh, that for the RFS have been. Um, a challenge and uh you know one of the things we'd like them to do is uh you know approve the rvp waiver for e15 and get that done they've said they could do it which is uh one of those things that to me uh should have been done years ago but um uh we've been to dc lobby on it legislatively we've been there and uh lobbied epa on it but um when they tell you they can do it and they don't that gets even more frustrating all right, Kevin, you're in for a busy uh, couple of years, I'm sure. Uh, you know that going in, and uh, I'm sure you are up to the challenge and can handle it, and uh, we, we wish you well. I appreciate it, Bruce. Thanks for the time today, and uh, look forward to talking to you in the future, and um, hopefully uh, do everybody proud as uh, uh, in leadership at National Corn Growers. That's Kevin Ross, newly elected vice president of the National Corn Growers Association. And I'm Bruce Gorder for Ag News Daily. Well, there we go. An Iowa boy doing right. Kevin Ross there over from Western Iowa. Great guy, great family. All around a good pick there to move into the VP position at NCGA. And Hannah and Delaney, we're getting ready to move off to the weekend, aren't we? We, we are. Indeed. Do you have any big plans for the weekend, Mike? Oh, boy. Stay inside. Stay near air conditioning. <laughs> it's going to be a hot one, it sounds like. Getting ready for the 4th of July coming up here. So if you guys are missing us over the weekend, you can find us on Facebook and on Twitter by searching for Ag News Daily. You can also head to agnewsdaily.com and shoot us a message there. With that, guys, should we let people go? Let's let, let, them, let go. them go. All right. 